You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The U.S. off-off-year elections seem to have gone off largely free of interference, but officials caution that major foreign influence campaigns can be expected in 2020. Three former Twitter employees are charged with spying for Saudi Arabia. Google boots seven adware droppers from the Play Store. Fishers are using web analytics for better hauls. And nation-states are targeting unpatched confluence. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, November 7th, 2019. The highly diversified and decentralized U.S. election system kept a close eye on Tuesday's off-off-year elections and has more or less declared success, as a joint announcement from several federal law enforcement and intelligence agencies asserted that election security had been unprecedented. That announcement did, however, note that attempts to influence or interfere with the 2020 elections, with Russia, China, and Iran likely to be particularly active. The concerns officials are voicing continue to focus on influence operations, as opposed to direct manipulation of vote totals or other attacks on voting machinery. CISA Director Christopher Krebs told CBS News no one should get cocky. Speaking of Russian operators in particular, Director Krebs said, They're going to be back. They're trying to get into our heads. They're trying to hack our brains, so to speak, and ultimately have us lose faith in our process. End quote. The U.S. has opened a case against three men for what's being called by the New York Times and others spying for Saudi Arabia. In this case, the spying has been directed against individuals as opposed to state secrets. The U.S. Justice Department has charged three men, two former Twitter employees and a Saudi national who apparently acted as their controller, with acting as agents of a foreign government without notice to the attorney general and with the destruction alteration, or falsification of records in a federal investigation. The government accused Ahmad Abuamo, a U.S. citizen, with snooping into three Twitter users' accounts, Ali Azbara, a Saudi national, who, like Mr. Abuamo, worked at Twitter, allegedly accessed more than 6,000 Twitter accounts in 2015. Their liaison with Riyadh is alleged to be Ahmed Al-Mutairi. Mr. Abuamu is in custody, but the other two are on the wing, and thought likely to be in Saudi Arabia. The criminal complaint ties their activities to Organization Number 1, led by Foreign Official Number 1, and Royal Family Member 1, said to be the owner of the charity. The Washington Post identifies these respectively as Badr el-Asakar, Misk, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The Twitter accounts of interest to the alleged spies were, the Wall Street Journal reports, critical of the Saudi regime in general and the Crown Prince in particular. It seems that the two former Twitter employees may have been placed in the company for the purpose of gaining access to such accounts. 
Both men left Twitter in 2015. The case opens concerns, obviously, about the security of social media companies and their susceptibility to being penetrated by state-run agents. Somewhat less obviously, it raises another question. If the platforms can be penetrated to snoop on individual accounts, might they not also be penetrated to facilitate the distribution of disinformation? The lowly email box remains a prime target for baddies, and as their sophistication grows, so too must our defenses. That's the opinion of Kevin O'Brien, CEO and co-founder at email security provider Greathorn. Email is a really interesting piece of technology. It's been around for about 50 years. It is one of the technologies that we look at as being both venerable but vulnerable. You're looking at a system that was architected, again, 50 years ago, for academics to be able to exchange information on timeshare Unix systems. And it was never meant to be a system that we built to be secure or to exchange messages with strong authentication or encryption or any of the other things that you see in modern communication platforms. But its age gives it a a certain degree of ubiquity that means that most serious business communications, wire transfers, exchanges of information about intellectual property, contracts, They occur over this platform. And although we've spent really the last 25 years trying to add on functionality to make it a secure system, it's fundamentally at odds with with what that platform was designed to be. And so it's now the case that we're in this moment when most cyber attacks start with an email in some fashion. And everything that people have put out into the world to try to supplant email but the, the message-based systems, if you're of a certain age, then you think about IRC. Uh, if you're a, a bit newer, maybe you're thinking about Slack or Teams. They're not equivalent technologies. They're attention distractors. They're real-time. Email has a certain elegance to it because it allows you to not have an instantaneous exchange of information, but rather to think for a moment about what you might say. And so that's well-suited to corporate communications, business communications. If we're going to secure the system, if we're going to make it something that is safe for communication, it has to also be easy because that's one of the foundational principles of email. I type in a subject line and a message and a two and I'm done. When I started Greathorn, so four years ago, the average adoption rate of things like Office 365 or G Suite, the the two most well-adopted cloud email platforms for for professional use, were 17% and 7% in the global 2000, respectively. Today, that combination has a nearly 90% adoption rate. And that's happened over the last 24 months, give or take. So there's a real change that's possible when you deal with semantic analysis and looking at all of the, the related relationship information that no legacy product is capable of doing. That's what you should be thinking about if you're responsible for securing email in 2019 and 2020, is how can I go find cloud-native email security systems that are really, and not just from a marketing buzzword perspective, leveraging the evolutions in artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies to give us a better way to stop these threats. So if I'm using uh, something like G Suite or Office 365, something like that, um, 
isn't there a certain amount of protection going on behind the scenes from those providers themselves? There is. And both Microsoft and Google do a really good job at stopping what we describe as volumetric threat. You probably don't see a whole lot of spam. I mean, you might see some marketing email you don't want, but the the real thing that we described as spam in, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the Nigerian prince who's going to send you a million dollars and just needs your social security number and, and mm. last name, that stuff kind of doesn't get caught anymore, right? And those are examples of volumetric attacks. So you will get pretty good fundamental protection. And, and for some organizations, that's enough. But when you're talking about targeted email attacks, what the industry has, has classified as business email compromise, that is the impersonation of an executive, fraud attempts that are often polymorphic, that is they change based on the recipient and their role. Those are not the kinds of things that the basic protections that are available, regardless of how they're, they're marketed from your, your email provider are going to catch. Uh, like any other part of a security program, those are the concerns that an enterprise will have, and they require enterprise-grade controls that have a certain degree of customization and a certain degree of uh, flexibility and the ability to articulate a response that is in line with your security posture. And one-size-fits-all basic protections from, from your email provider just aren't designed to do that, nor is that their business, right? Uh, they'll stop the volumetric stuff all day long, and that's good. But you don't need to worry about, uh, as your primary concern, the problems that you might have worried about 20 years ago. It's not spam, and it's not even things like data loss prevention, where you're trying to keep someone from inadvertently sending a credit card out. You can do that by default in those platforms. The concern today has shifted. The, the locus of concern has shifted to advanced targeted attacks, and you need advanced third-party technology if you're going to combat that. And maybe you don't worry about that if you're a 10-person or 20-person uh, small company because you can literally turn around and say, hey, just send me this email. But once you're at hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of employees and global, it's time to step up to an enterprise-grade control set to give you that level of protection and scalability. That's Kevin O'Brien from Great Horn. Google has booted seven badly behaved apps from the Play Store, and they urge you to kick them out if you've already downloaded them onto your device. The apps are Alarm Clock, Calculator, and Free Magnifying Glass, all from iSoft LLC. Two apps produced by Lizat Mitis, the attractively named Magnifier, Magnifying Glass with Flashlight, and Super Bright Flashlight. And finally, two produced by Pump App, Magnifying Glass, and, another good name, Super bright LED flashlight. Give them all the heave-ho. Security firm Wandera found the Maleficent 7, and how the app worked is interesting. They're dropper apps that pull files in from outside the Google Play ecosystem, in this case from GitHub, and that therefore avoid the usual security checks that might detect them. There's other obfuscation in place as well. Wandera told Forbes that there's some good news and some bad news. The bad news is the obfuscation and the aggressive back door that opens subjects devices to further attack. The good news is that so far the payloads have been nuisance malware and that the number of downloads is relatively small, numbering in the thousands and not in the millions. Web analytics platforms have many legitimate uses, like seeing where users come from and how long they spend on various pages. We use them, and you may use them too. It's thought that somewhat more than half the world's websites use analytics. The biggest of these services is Google Analytics. 
Akamai has taken a look at the ways in which these tools can be used for evil. Phishing, in particular, seems able to benefit from web analytics. Implausible spray-and-pray campaigns, while still common enough, are giving way to more closely targeted and therefore more likely to succeed phishing. Much of that newfound plausibility, Akamai concludes, can be chalked up to criminal use of analytics. They use the analytics much the way legitimate users do, quote, to improve kits and gather stats on campaign effectiveness, end quote. In short, to make their bait more attractive to the fish they hope to reel in. Attackers are exploiting Atlassian's widely used Confluence collaboration platform, hitting a vulnerability, CVE 2019-3396, that Confluence disclosed and patched this past spring. NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate publicly warned that nation-state services were likely to attack unpatched Confluence instances, and various cybersecurity companies have since confirmed an uptick of activity against Confluence users. The warning is significant in itself, but it's also noteworthy as an example of the sort of relatively quick public disclosure NSA's Young Cybersecurity Directorate has promised. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He's the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back. Um, 
You have been working on uh, some information about encrypted SNI in TLS 1.3 uh, and how that can be used for domain fronting. Uh, let's dig in here. What do you have to share with us today? Yeah, this actually work that was mostly done by Bojan Sertnia. Uh, he's one of our uh, Internet Storm Center handlers. Uh, now, uh, he looked into how sort of that entire DNS over HTTPS and TLS uh, 1.3 ecosystem can be used for new attacks. Now, domain fronting itself is not a new attack, has been done a lot, and cloud providers have done a lot to defend against it. The way it sort of works is, simplistically speaking, I'm inside a corporate network. For example, I'm malware. I'm trying to connect to my command control server. But the infrastructure within the corporate network prevents me from connecting to it. For example, at some TLS gateway or via DNS, the host name I'm trying to reach is blocked. So what I'm doing is uh, I'm setting up my command control server to be behind a public cloud provider like Cloudflare. Then I'm going to connect to Cloudflare, pretending that I'm going to connect to a different hostname, a valid hostname that's not blocked. I can do that. I can do the DNS lookup. And then the tricky part here is in a TLS connection. Hmm. In a TLS connection, there are two parts that really determine which hostname I'm connecting to. There's one part that's in the clear that's visible, and that's called server name indicator. The first packet of data that I'm sending to the server includes that basis, hey, I want to connect to this particular the server. And this would be now in my attack, a server that's valid, that's uh, not blocked. But then as part of the encrypted part, I'm sending a host header that is pointing to the malicious website. Hmm. So what cloud providers did is that if the server name indicator and the host header doesn't match, they would block it. But with the encrypted server name indicator that is available now in TLS 1.3, that first part is also encrypted. So uh, now the cloud provider has a much harder time figuring out what side I'm actually connecting to. And as Boyan found out that hmm. this is still sort of one hole that you know, Cloudflare, which supports TLS 1.3, supports uh, server name indicator, it actually uh, is uh, falling for this, and it's still able to do domain fronting uh, using uh, this specific technique. Hmm. Is there a way to prevent this yet, or is it uh, something that's uh, yet to be addressed? It's really a little bit an open question here uh, how this can be addressed. Now, uh, in part, of course, it has to be addressed and can be addressed uh, at the proxy providers like Cloudflare. Uh, they have to make sure that they are able to decrypt that server name indicator, or maybe they're just not going to accept encrypted server name indicator, which of course uh, violates a little bit their privacy mission. Uh, they, they support this feature on purpose because it does provide some privacy. Now, in a corporate network that would be infected with malware taking advantage of this, uh, there are specific DNS records uh, that are being used in order uh, to exchange encryption keys for this feature. And uh, one thing that you could possibly do is block uh, these DNS records. Now, Boyan took a look at how popular these DNS records are. Right now, there are only a few dozens of them that appear to be in use across the internet. So really, the feature isn't used officially yet at this point. Uh, interestingly, a lot of them he found in Russia, but um, not necessarily associated with particular types of sites. 
so this this is one option right now to just block it. Uh, but you know, as the feature becomes more popular, if you are worried about privacy, uh, that may no longer be an option. And then it's really just up to uh, the cloud providers and not really clear yet uh, what they can do really to prevent that. All right. It's interesting and, and certainly one to watch. Uh, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.